those of you who haven't done this before, this is a Q&A Sunday in our Sunday school. We just finished all of our lessons on the Minor Prophets and the Whirlwind Tour of 12 Prophets in 12 weeks. And I think we might have taken an extra week somewhere along the way. And before we move on to the next Sunday school, which I will tell you about at the end of this class, we want to open up the floor for questions. And the order we try to prioritize these is, first, any questions from anything having to do with the Sunday school. Any questions that are unpacking or following up or going into more detail on any of the things we covered in the Minor Prophets. So that's the good news is, this Sunday school was on the Minor Prophets, so it's hard to imagine a question you could bring up that you can't somehow relate back to that. Um, and then once we've done that, then it'll be questions on anything you want with whatever time we have left. And I will use my computer to look up my notes quickly so I remember uh, and try to speak truth to the answer to your questions. But let's, uh, let's open up the floor, especially with regards to the Minor Prophets class and that information. What do... What can we talk about this morning? Do you have any thoughts on the gap, the 400 years between what Malachi and... Oh, the silence. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot in the silence, isn't there? <laughs> I mean, especially as you go through the minor prophets and you hear how much repetition there is. And you remember that the Minor Prophets are not all written in a 30-year window to the same generation of people, but that we dealt with hundreds of years of the history of God's people, of him telling them, they complained, they mostly along the way, some group, some remnant, repent, change their behavior, approach God differently, and then one and a half generations later, that cycle starts back over again. And so there's... There's both something to be said in that they had all they needed already in the prophets they already possessed, in, in the things that God had already said to them. It was all there. They needed to go back. You think about the rediscovery of the law and what a difference that made if they would just go back. Sometimes I feel that way about us when I'm obviously a fan of, of books and we'll have a new book for our new Sunday school class, a pro book, but uh, I was talking with Craig or somebody this week about in the business world how you go to conferences and you watch people at these business conferences take pages and pages and pages of notes. And the thought is, when are you ever going to go back and implement any of this? You, you, you would do well to write down one thing that you're going to go home and, and implement and make use of. And I think for us, we can sort of get a little bit on that, that hamster wheel of adding new stuff, new content, and letting that be a distraction from making any use of the stuff we've already learned or that God has already said to us. Um, and so I think there is some element of that where God doesn't need to give his people anything new. We know in redemptive history, there was nothing new to say until Christ. Well, especially once you get to what we read there at the end of Malachi, and you see how the Old Testament ends with this anticipation of the one who is going to come and make this right, the one who is going to come and change things, and then kind of the next word, so to speak, in the New Testament is, is John the Baptist saying, here he is. He's, behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. Oh, okay, yeah, that's the guy you're talking about 400 years ago. Uh, but, but there wasn't much new to say, and would they have listened? 
given how much they had already been told these things and failed to apply them at that point. So I think I think there's there's a historical reason for the silence, and then we need to look into the theological reason for it, and then we need to think about how that how that applies to us. I, I hope I'm not the only one that adds a bunch of new stuff before I've applied any of the previous stuff that I've learned. Is it? Um, I mean, we we tend to read the Old Testament. As if these things were happening all back the to time, back to back. Where yeah, there's lots of thousands gaps. of years, yeah, right? There's like, lots so. of gaps. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a significant period of history, um, in which all of this takes place, and there were huge hundred year gaps, sometimes thousand year gaps along the way. When you think about uh, the Bible chronologically. <laughs> Bible chronologically, in terms of not when events took place, but when the books were written, when was this story actually put down into writing? Most scholars believe Job was actually the, the first written book, the oldest uh, that we captured. And, and uh, yeah, you do have lots of gaps. That's not uncommon, so that's a good point. Interestingly enough, the uh, chronological Bible reading plan was Job last, which is very confusing. In terms of when events happened? Yeah. So Job happened after Malachi spoke? It's very confusing. In <laughs> December, you get to read the book of Job, which is wonderful. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Here's some death and sadness. <laughs> Great question. Other questions? When we were talking about Jonah, we talked a lot about different genres in yeah. the Bible. Um, and I'm trying to remember some of the, like, the pointers we could look to for something to be a historical narrative versus um, maybe you know, symbol. Yeah, okay. Um, one of the first distinctions you can make is, am I looking at uh, prose or poetry? And your English Bible will help you a lot with this because your English Bible will indent poetry, <laughs> which is super helpful. <laughs> uh, and then in the prophets, the example we used was when you're getting prophecy, especially predictive prophecy, the kind of prophecy that's going to help you understand something about the future. When God revealed himself to the prophets, he did so in a lot of ways. Sometimes it's dreams and visions, and sometimes it was a word from the Lord. Um, when it says the word of the Lord according to, when it says something that to you seems very straightforward, oh, God told this to so-and-so you should tend toward the prose historical narrative category. There's other clues that you'll look for, but that starts to lean you in that direction. The, another, the opposite of that would be uh, revelation. Then I was called up and I saw a vision, and I, or Daniel 7 or 8, or um, these places where it, the language itself suggests to you, I had a dream, I had a vision. I, I saw something. That's a, just a good distinction. Seeing something is less likely to be literal than hearing something in the realm of prophecy. Because if it says the word of the Lord, then I heard the Lord say. That's very, it's an oral cultural. Hero, Lord, uh, hero Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord's one. Hearing is, is I won't say certainty, but hearing is, is their primary means of communicating narrative and facts. Um, what types of illustrations are used? What does the text tell you that it is? So remember when we were talking about Jonah, 
Jonah begins with the word of the Lord to Jonah. Okay, so we would tend toward the prose. And then it says, Jonah, son of Amittai. All right, well, now we're anchoring Jonah in a historical family, in a historical situation. So that's another big clue that it's prose uh, rather than poetry or literal rather than, than uh, parable. And you'll get more and more clues like that from the text that will help you figure out the genre. The way Jonah reads is straightforward narrative. Sometimes this won't always be the case, but with Jonah it is. As an example, you can see how other people in the Bible used that text. Did they use it as literal history or did they use it as a figurative example? Who uses Jonah in the Bible? Jesus. And how does Jesus use Jonah in the Bible? Just as he was in the belly of the fish three days, so the son of man... Oh, okay. Yeah, that seems pretty, pretty literal, right? So that's another type of clue we can look for. So you have all of these clues together. And then once you know the genre, it's a virtuous circle but you can't start with with genre but once you know the genre you use the genre to help you interpret specific passages and what they mean and how i'm to understand them so once we know that the text makes clear jonah is historical narrative now when we get to the parts that we might be more inclined to think are not historical narrative we said nope we know jonah told us what it is it's historical narrative so this plant really did spring up overnight and really, uh, really was cursed and killed by God in the next day. Uh, good question. And when we get to Job, almost all of Job is poetry. Job is what we're doing next. Uh, there are obviously lots of historical events in Job, but Job is written is is something. Other questions? I thought I was going to write more. I thought I was going to make distinctions and lines and draw things. You know. <laughs> If I can just follow with this one, so I think it's a good segue. Um, the, you know, I saw an ad saying America and Great Britain in Bible prophecy. <laughs> like that's a, that's an example of making even the historical narrative like symbolism. Or, and I'm also thinking of you know people who interpret Revelation as the attack helicopters being the locusts, stuff like that. Yeah. I refer you to my Revelation Sunday School, okay. <laughs> just because it's a very detailed answer, but it's a good question. The, 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 the short answer is, for the most part, when Bible prophecies relate to modern historical events, it's because the Bible prophecy relates to a category of events, a kind of event, that happens again and again and again throughout history. And so we... we we have to approach the conversation as the Bible does have something to say, and the Bible does make predictions. Is it predictions suggest like there's even a chance it wouldn't come true? And that's not what the Bible's doing. The Bible is telling you what is going to happen throughout history. And so the Bible absolutely does tell us that in these days in which we live, there will be wars and rumors of war. There will be people who hate the church and persecute the church. All of those are forward-looking prophecies. You're making a mistake if you take those prophecies and try and draw a single line of connection to this individual event, this individual war, this individual persecution. And your mistake is not that you're crazy to think the Bible could predict the future. The mistake is that your God is too small. 
Your, your God was not simply concerned about this invasion of Iraq. Your God is telling you to prepare Christians for how to live in this age, that this is the kind of world in which you will live until he comes. And the more specific somebody gets about an event, the question we want to ask is, okay, are you getting specific about that event because it fits into one of these types that the Bible tells us to anticipate? Or are you trying to draw a straight line between something in the Bible and this single event as if that is some great connection that you've made? And the danger of that, the second thing, is that it's modern-day Gnosticism, the idea that there's some secret knowledge in the Bible that's not open to all of us, but that some people will have revealed to them and we need to follow those people and listen to them. That's not just not true, that's the opposite of what the New Testament tells us. You have access to all of the wisdom of God in scriptures, with or without any single individual who's trying to tell you that they've unlocked some mystery for you. And it really gets dangerous when people start telling you, I see this thing. Because normally those people say, God showed me this thing. And then you really gotta sort of get a little cockeyed and have some questions with them. Does that answer? Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. yeah. And there is, I highly recommend, especially for the book of Revelation, but really for reading biblical prophecy in general, um, More Than Conquerors is, is uh, you'll, you hear me quote him in the sermon a lot, a guy named William Hendrickson, who was a great New Testament scholar. He's with the Lord now. His democracy with the Lord. I'm not, he may or may not be with the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> what is the that's what the Lord is with him. Good call. Good save. Uh, I think he's with the Lord. Anyway, he wrote a, a user-friendly commentary on Revelation that reads more like a book than a commentary called More Than Conquerors. And it's fantastic for understanding the book of Revelation, but it's also really, really good at giving you the tools you need to read biblical prophecy in general and to think about what God does and, and, and does not convey through these genres. Like you said, back to your first question, even once something is a non-literal genre, that doesn't mean we dismiss it or that it's less inerrant or that it's less the word of God. It's still the perfect word of God. So we've got to learn how to read that genre and how to apply it. And especially with non-literal genres like predictive prophecy, apocalyptic prophecy, uh, or parables, you see people go to extremes where they either read it like historical narrative and they're trying to connect it to a black helicopter, which ends up in a bad place, or you just utterly dismiss it as, well, this doesn't have much value for me. And, and both of those are, are mistakes. This is kind of related. So mine has to do with numbers. Numbers are important in the Bible. How I thought you were going to say the book of numbers and that was terrifying. <laughs> I was going to have to do some Googling. Uh -huh. Numerology. Yeah. <laughs> how do you know, like, how can you know when someone has gone overboard with the numbers importance? If they're talking about numbers, they've probably gone overboard. Right. The, the great no, that's the great news about, about numbers in the Bible. Again, I refer back to the comments. There are not numbers in the Bible to have secret meanings, to hide things from you that somebody else has to unpack and unravel and do the math. And that is not what any of this is about. Numbers do, in certain cultures, convey meanings. Some of those meanings carry over across cultures. Um, some of those meanings don't. 
And so as a part of studying, what did this mean to the original audience? What would they have seen in this? It can be really helpful to have an understanding of their cultural time and place view of numbers. And because God deals not exclusively, but primarily with one group of people for 4,000 years, the books of the Bible over those 4,000 years use a lot of the same numbers for a lot of the same meanings. The meanings of these numbers should always be additive to your understanding of the scripture. They should add another layer. They are not themselves the layer. They are never the point of the thing. If you think about our, our proverb I stole from my seminary professor that meaning is a dot and meaning is a circle. <laughs> The numbers are never the dot. They are never the center of the circle meaning exactly what this is about. But there is some meaning sometimes contained within those numbers. Um, and the good news about the Bible is they're, they're very common numbers that you see a lot that are, pretty, uh, that are pretty, pretty common and pretty easy to understand. You're not having to do any tough math for these. Uh, seven is a number of completeness and perfection. And so when you see seven or any multiple of seven, there is a chance, and you see if it fits the context, that that has to do with completeness and perfection. Um, 12 is a number of authority. So as you look through the Bible and you see the number 12 or multiples of 12, you're dealing maybe with situations where authority is an emphasis. A thousand is a number of bigness. So seven is perfection. 7,000 is lots of perfection, lots of completeness. Um, 40 is frequently a number of trials and tribulations. Those are the ones that come to mind. But again, what's that? 666. Well, I mean, think about what I said about seven. What is seven? Oh, uh, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Completeness and perfection. What is six? Imperfection. Yeah. Coming, right? Not, yeah. And so, um, yeah, that, that can help you see. Again, if you're basing your, uh, your walk with Christ and what's going to make me more sanctified today on studying some of these numbers, I'm afraid you're going to come up a little disappointed. But if you're reading specific Bible passages and some of these numbers come up and you remember, oh, that's a multiple of seven. Look, I see what's happening here. The army that has 7,000 troops that God says, I'm sending in the battle, and it's going to win victory against the 200,000 troops, is not 7,000 on accident. It's 7,000 because God's saying, any army that I put together is the right army. It's the right army for the job. It's that kind of thing. Um, and, and again, with all of these things where people can get a little wonky in their theology, numbers, modern prophecies, I find the best strategy in response is to graciously embrace the part of it that's true and redirect the discussion there. Um, I, I would not engage in trying to lecture somebody about the difference between locusts and helicopters, more so than I would say, you know, what do you, what, what do you feel like is the point of that prophecy? Aren't you so glad that God gave John an entire book and closed his canon with it? It's the last book of scripture with a book that is entirely about helping his people persevere until he comes. Living in this crazy world in which we live until he comes. How gracious is our God that even with all of this crazy visions and signs and language, that if you zoom out and you look at the book of Revelation, 
He is giving his people comfort and assurance so that they persevere in challenging times until he comes. And try to redirect the discussion there. And if they want to get back to Syria and Iraq, or if they want to get back to, I mean, there was there's an entire Hebrew, we call it art form, for lack of a better term. It's a theological art form. All the Hebrew letters have a corresponding number. And so there's an entire form that many of the ancient rabbis practice, less popular today, but where you basically convert a bunch of things to numbers, and then you can make all of these bizarro connections. You make all of these creative connections based on what those numbers add up to or what the math is or things, you know, spells the same. It's the same number as the name of Jesus. And so, and, wow, that's, that's reaching. That's reaching deep. I don't believe, given um, what we call the perspicuity of Scripture, there's your $5 word for today, Scripture is understandable to you. The Lord did not give you his word and then make you so that you can't understand it. He didn't make a book where you have to go digging for, for, for secrets that can't be found unless somebody else explains them to you. Teaching is helpful. I hope teaching is helpful. That's what I'm doing. Commentaries are helpful. But if you were on a desert island alone with the Bible, you, you wouldn't be hopeless. You, you would have all that you need for faith and for faithful living. As long as you have the Spirit. As long as you have the Holy Spirit. That's right. Um, without which we have no understanding, which is a great, it's like Jake read the sermon text for today he knows what's up that's our second requirement for elders last week we decided they had to know the be christians or know the bible, know the bible reason, I think. I don't know. <laughs> uh, great question so be both be don't don't be concerned about that stuff and that you're missing out on something and be gracious with people who are kind of getting pulled into the you should feel sorry for them we should feel sorry that someone has made them feel like the bible is hiding the truth from them rather than God illuminating the truth through his spirit. It's the exact opposite of what God did in Christ. He made things clear, which is today's sermon text. It wasn't clear until the resurrection in the spirit. This just popped into my head, so feel free to shoot down this heresy. But when you're talking about numbers, it occurred to me that the number 12 seems to very often be attached to God's people. And so I wonder if it has something to do with the full, like in Revelation, it's 144,000. It's the dimensions of the New Jerusalem. It's the 12 tribes. Like, I may have just made that up. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, twelve has a uh, twelve has more. I said authority. Yeah. Uh, twelve has several meanings, not of which all. Uh, not I don't remember all of them. That one makes sense. Uh, I, I would want to go back and look. Does that fit into the authority question, though? Is it like you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. You can tell I'm not terribly interested in the number part. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just not. But I, when I see them, I think about what does this mean? What is God saying something in particular with us? Uh, other questions? How do you how do you graciously uh, talk to? How, how do you share your viewpoint on someone who still believes that who would say, well, "God told me this." You know, I was I was praying and God told me this, and you know, you should do this action. Or I believe. Right? You know what? We've done it before, but it's always good to hear again. Yeah. Um, I like how you start with how would I graciously. I would not graciously, but <laughs> a, a not theoretical not. observer who wanted to handle this or could handle this graciously, what would they do? Um, no, it's a great question because there are a lot of people in the Christian church who say things like, God told me. God told me to. And 
When somebody says something like that, what do we do? Uh, and to be gracious, the best place to start is, what do you mean? Now, your question presumed you have that answer, so I'll come back to that. But let's just start with the, when somebody says, God told me, God said to me, any form of that, and then they put something after it. Now, if what they put after it is a Bible verse, great, we move on. <laughs> because, yeah, God did tell me that. God told me the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And you should go, yeah, he did. God told me to lay claim of the land. You know, I mean, like you can. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of things. What land are you laying claim of? Yeah. So most of the time, though, that's not what they're saying, right? Most of the time, they're saying God told me to take this job, move to this place, or to to buy this thing, do this thing. Something that is not clearly in Scripture, or in your example, something that's in Scripture and has nothing to do with them. Right? Um, God told me to go take for myself seven wives, as that is the number of perfection. <laughs> and tiredness. <laughs> Tired. Uh, all right, what do they mean? That's the question we want to ask them. Well, what, what do you mean by that? Because what a lot of people mean when they say God told me is there's something I've been thinking about, a decision or a choice I've been trying to make. I've been trying to think about it biblically. I've prayed about it, and what I want to do on the basis of everything I've just said is X. And if that's what they mean, leave them alone. Leave them alone, because that's what we're all supposed to be doing. We're all supposed to be thinking about the decisions that we need to make. Do I do this or do I do that? Think about it biblically. Pray about it. There are other things we need to do. Seek wise counsel, blah, blah. But if what we're talking about is... I decided I want to do this and I believe I can do this with a clean conscience before the Lord. That's what we should be doing. That's, that's a big part of how we should be making decisions. And if that's what they mean, ah, they can pick more careful language, but okay. Sometimes though, that's not what they mean. Sometimes they mean, uh, have y'all read, a lot of you've read Kevin DeYoung's great little book, Just Do Something. And he's got an anecdote in there about this guy, uh, I think they were friends in, in college maybe, and he was dating this girl, and the girl decided she didn't want to date him anymore, as women are allowed to do, uh, and, and she, she said to him, the Lord told me to end this relationship and break up with you. And Kevin DeYoung was like, I mean, that's, that's harsh. You didn't just get broken up with by a girl, but the Holy Spirit broke up with it. Like that's, that's pretty intense, right? And a lot of times, that's what people mean. And we do need to have a gracious conversation for several reasons. One is, that's not how we discern the will of God. We do not discern the will of God by saying, going through the good decision-making process and knowing now what I want to do, I'm going to tell you is perfectly from God cannot be wrong and cannot go wrong because that's so that's a good place to start once you figured out that's what they mean is well first let's just talk about what God's word is if God says something what do we both believe about what God says do we believe God can say anything wrong hopefully not 
do we believe that uh, anything that God says to us to do can be outside of his will? We can do things that are outside of God's will. But can God tell you to do something outside of his will? No. All right, so we, we, all, we agree about that for the word of God. Now, let's go back to what you said. Buying this Ferrari is what God told me to do. Do you mean to say that that cannot be the wrong thing to do? That it is impossible, that it is as certain that you should buy this Ferrari as that Christians should love their neighbor? Well, I mean, and see, that's the danger here, is when we say God told me, when we claim something is from God, we're claiming as much certainty in it, as much perfection in it, as everything else God says. Because God doesn't speak in gradations of truth. God doesn't speak in gradations of good. Everything he says is perfectly true and perfectly good. And so if we are claiming God's word on a particular thing, we have to be willing to say it is completely perfect and it is completely good and there is no chance I am wrong. And most people I have this kind of conversation with at least have enough humility to realize they've made bad decisions before that they thought were God's will for them. I've done things in my life that I thought God was directing me to do that I later look back and think, no, that was kind of Paul directing Paul to do and trying to put God's stamp of approval on it. Um, and, and that's what we want to help people see, is that our beef with this way of talking, God told me, and with this way of thinking, God told me, is that it makes claims on our wants and desires that equate them with the word of God. And that's not a theologically true way to talk, but it's not a personally helpful way to speak. A lot of times when we speak that way, it's because we're trying to put our decision above reproach. We're actually a little bit insecure about our decision. We think that somebody could make a case that we should not do the thing that we're wanting to do. I don't want to hear you people tell me that I should not buy my Ferrari. And so I'm going to say, God told me to buy the Ferrari. Because now I'm going to make, don't argue with me, argue with God. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a sleight of hand. It's a dishonest defense mechanism. That's not, that's not what they're necessarily consciously intending to do but it is the result of it now if you have this opportunity to take a job and it's an incredible opportunity you make a ton of money you get a lot of fame and notoriety it's in something that you would be great at and the only downside of it is that you have to leave your wife and children for three years and then you'll be back and you say to someone you know i, I prayed about it and you know god told me this is what i need to do are they saying, I welcome your feedback, brother or sister in Christ? I would love to hear your opinion on the wisdom of this particular choice. No, they're saying, God told me. So graciously, was your question. Make sure that that's what they mean and that they're not saying something else that's, that's okay. That's something that we would say a different way. Make sure that you have agreement about what makes the word of God the word of God. That God can't say something in gradations of truth or goodness. And then express your concern. You know, I don't think this is how you mean it. But when you say something outside of the Bible is the word of God, it's kind of like you're saying, I'm not allowed to disagree with that. 
or I'm not allowed to ask you if that's wise or good or because you're telling me God said it. And I don't think that's a helpful way to make decisions. If you do this and it goes really, really, really wrong and it, you find yourself stumbling headlong into massive sin because of this choice, would you still at that point say, God told you to do it? Or would you repent of your choice? That's what we need to be willing to do. And again, those conversations, uh, some of them will not go well. No matter how gracious you are, some of them will not go well. What, how should we encourage them to take? I relate to this. Yeah. Get a new job. It was all about you. It was about you. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Wait, he told me he was taking his family with him. (laughs) I've been deceived. (laughs) No. Maybe not. Maybe our prayers will all be answered. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this isn't we don't want to move week. (laughs) No, no, no. No, we all do experience this. And we experience this from people that are not strangers or so disconnected to us that we could just blow up the relationship over our response, right? That we have to not just be gracious, but sort of think long-term and be careful and think positively. What do I encourage them to do? Which was your question. We should encourage people. Well, the good, that's the great news. So really in this topic, now I'll recommend it even more heartily that we've gotten this far into the discussion. If you haven't read Kevin DeYoung's Just Do Something, you should read it. And if you have read it, maybe reread it because it's really short and it won't take you very long. But it's fantastic on this point because what they're grasping, what they're struggling with, the person who feels the need to say, God told me so, what they're struggling with is the most frequent struggle in the Christian life. How do I discern the will of God? How do I know what God's will is in this situation? That, that is the daily struggle of the Christian life. And that book is very good at helping us think through the biblical and the unbiblical ways of, of doing that. And the good news is, when you're trying to encourage someone in another direction, you have a lot of positive things you can say. This doesn't have to be a, you're doing it wrong and it's all bad and you need to do it a harder, worse way. The first thing you can let people do is you can invite them to take the weight off their shoulders of their acceptance in Christ being based on never, ever, ever making a mistake. Because... You see so many people paralyzed with fear on their decisions when, and we've talked a lot of times about how to make decisions, but just big picture, you think of it as a funnel. At the top of the funnel, you have all the options in the world in this situation. And the very first thing you have to do is say, what does God prohibit or what does God require? The Bible's incredibly clear about that. What are the things we have to cross off as not allowed at all? Or is there anything here that is in the must-do category? And we take all the world of infinite choices at the top of the funnel, and we cross off the ones that are not allowed, we circle the must-dos, and now our funnel's a little narrower. We have fewer choices. That's when you get into things like, what is wise? Is something more obviously wise? There's nothing, there's no law in Scripture that lets me not buy my Ferrari. So the Ferrari is still in the funnel at this point. There may be several things at the level of what's wise that begin to rule out the Ferrari. And that's where we go seek godly counsel. That's where we ask other people and sometimes just observe other people. 
when I see everyone in my church operating a certain way and that's I'm faced with do I do that or I do the total opposite that doesn't make the decision but it goes into the the, the it's a factor in the funnel uh, and so you continue to narrow these choices down but the beauty is once you get to the bottom of this funnel the very last thing assuming there's two options or more or less assuming you know do I go to this school, that school, take this job, that job, buy this house, that house. All these decisions, so many of them, there are options left at the bottom when you've done the, the funnel. The last level of this funnel is, what do I want to do? And one of the great messages that we get to deliver to people in these conversations is, they don't have to feel bad about that. When you've already removed the sinful stuff at the top of the funnel, and when you've taken into account godly wisdom, when you get to the bottom, you're allowed to say, well, I want to do that. Now, a, a, a mature Christian says, and why do I want to do that? And you think about the drivers in this. If that's what I want, but I want it because, yeah, other people would just think I was really cool if I had this Ferrari. That might be a reevaluation question. <laughs> but a lot of times it's, I like this better. This sounds more appealing to me. This seems like it would be a lot of fun. I like the kitchen of this house. <laughs> I know it costs 20,000 more, but we have 20,000 more and I like the kitchen better. And you're allowed to. And I think one of the great blessings of being able to get to that point in a conversation with somebody positively is the number of Christians who don't feel like that's an option. They don't feel like they're allowed to even consider what do I want or for some of us who grew up in different theological environments, that's an automatic disqualifier. The fact that you want it means it has to be wrong. And what a burden to take off of people's shoulders. No, 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 God gave us the level of sinful or not. Throw that out, that's very clear. That's not as fuzzy as we make it out to be. It's very clear what's sinful and not. 99% of the time, and the other 1% of the time, somebody can help you. <laughs> um, so we add all of this confusion at that phase, the top of the funnel, where the Bible is very clear. And we, we get to the bottom and we act like it should be this black and white thing where there's lots of room for grace and freedom and different choices. So I, I, I would try to come at that more positively with somebody. And my fear for you is that, I, I hear what you're trying to do, honor God, find God's will, it's amazing. I mean, that is exactly how God calls us to think. My fear for you is what I hear you saying it seems like a heavy burden. It, it, it seems like that approach could really make you fearful that you're disobeying God. And I don't think we need to be fearful in our decisions. Does that help? Yeah. Last one. Shoot, I was going to say, may I ask two and you pick the one that you want to answer? That's my favorite way to do this. Are you going to work through the funnel? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so two themes that I'm remembering from the minor prophets, one of them was that of bad leaders, bad leadership from... Amy. I don't like this question. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I can go to the um, So the question regarding that is, um, like, you know, what are, what are qualities of good biblical leadership from Christian leaders? And then also, maybe even in the workplace, are there common grace qualities that we should look for in our leaders? So that's one question. The other question, another theme in the Minor Prophets was the 
giving of resources, of money to build the church. I remember we talked about that, I think, last week. Um, what is the difference between kind of that godly exhortation to uh, give with a generous or with a happy heart versus kind of the prosperity gospel, health, wealth, give my ministry more money and everything will be good? I know there's a difference, but like I can't, I'm not like a student enough to technically look in the Bible and see the difference between those two. Well, I think they're both pretty quick answers, so okay. I can I can attempt to, to answer both. The, the traits of godly leaders is an easy question to answer because God gives us direct passages. So we have 1 Timothy 5 and Titus 1. Somebody correct. Is it 5? I'm really good with the with the numbers. I told you I don't care about numbers. <laughs> Get off my back. Uh, scripture gives us the qualifications. And we're making a mistake if we say, well, God gives us qualifications for elder. And if I'm not talking about being an elder in Christ's church, that passage is irrelevant. Let me go find somewhere else. The, the reason why those are the qualifications for elder is that those are godly traits that are beneficial lived out in front of the lives of God's people. And so it's great to go back to that list and say, what does God require of me? What should I look for in people that I want to emulate? Whether it's in, uh, in friendships, associations, workplaces, what are good things to look for in people where God says, when these traits are present, that's good for you. That's a good relationship to be in. And so when he talks about elders, he says, be above reproach. That's a great one to just stop with for a minute and think about the people in my life that I am emulating professionally or that I admire. What's their level of above reproach? Right? Do they, what do other people think about them? And do I want to be yoked or associated with people that others observe and always have kind of that wink wink nudge nudge about yeah we know that guy will do what it takes to get it done that's not good for me um, self-control sober-minded respectable hospitable not a drunkard uh, not violent but gentle not quarrelsome not a lover of money dignity these are there's, you know and there are things in here that are specific to elders and families and church life and they but you also can take those words and broaden it back out. What am I looking for in leaders? And uh, it's a it's a convicting list. I mean, standing up here reading a phrase, it's a convicting list. Um, so it's a good standard to use, not to demand perfection from other human beings, but to say what are the traits people can exhibit that God has said it's good to be around these traits and it's good to be led by people who have these traits. So that's how to answer that one. Your other one was about the difference between um, money being good and prosperity gospel. Yeah, like remember last week we were talking about how God was saying, like you've been given all these resources and you're not building my temple. Yeah. Like I can see how kind of Copeland would be like, hey, give me money. There's, there's really, I mean, there's two somewhat simple tests there, which is, is what a person wants to do with the money in ministry? consistent with how God says he will build and protect and prosper his church and his people. So when a ministry wants to use money to 
make disciples in all the earth and you look at the way they want to use that money and it truly is making disciples in all the earth that's a good place to put some money and to feel good about putting money when you look at ministries and they seem to spend a lot of money being a ministry or when their plan for how to minister to people is not consistent with how God teaches us disciples are made and gathered and perfected, then that's one that you want to back off of. So there are great organizations. I've got a friend who runs, or I think he runs one called Ministry Watch. Um, there's several of these where they, they get the finances of all of these organizations and they get their mission statements and they're, and they're making decisions, uh, recommendations about whether or not they're one, acting consistently with what they claim they're doing, and two, you know, is this money being used to support ministry or is this being used to purchase a, a jet and do all those kinds of things? So I, I do think that sort of analysis is, is very helpful. The root of that question was a conversation I was having with uh, an unbelieving friend where he was basically saying like, when you're tithing, aren't, you just, aren't they just like taking money that's, that was the root of... No, you're giving the money out of your pocket. Yeah. And I, I know all these things. It's just helpful <laughs> to, like... When you're talking to an unbeliever, it's just hard to... Yeah. I mean, you can't... It, makes, it doesn't make a lot of sense for unbelievers, which is why, on the whole, unbelievers are ridiculously uncharitable. Set aside religion, but religion is the only... True religion is the only thing that can motivate the heart to be generous... God has been generous with us. Otherwise, why would we pray? Uh, and then you have the occasional uber wealthy people who have some PR sense. I know that's ungracious, but for so many of them, that's all it is. You know, why is the Bill Gates Foundation named the Bill Gates Foundation? It's, it's, so they have some sense. They've been given a lot. So they'll give a lot. That's, you know, I'm glad they do. I'd much rather live in a world where they do than where they don't. But true religion in the heart is the only thing that can make a person really generous. And so you look at tax returns of really wealthy unbelievers and they give nothing. Set aside, they don't give to church. Of course they wouldn't give to church. But they don't give to anything. They don't give to local homeless shelters. They don't give, I mean, it's pathetic when you get to see these tax returns of mostly politicians, but occasionally celebrities. And you have so much and you give nothing. And you watch these basketball stars, and ESPN likes to make a huge deal out of some basketball star who made $21 million last year, who gave 3000 to an elementary school inner city to have a basketball court with a giant plaque with his name on it. And that's supposed to make me feel, what? Um, Daphne and I were in Puerto Rico, and on the tour, two different celebrities' names came up from the tour guide a lot. He loved these celebrities because of how much they put into the Puerto Rico and to the community. But it was very obvious that as much time had been spent talking about how much the celebrity had given to them as dollars had been given to them. Everything had their name on it. Everything was the story and the media talks about it and it's in the newspapers and it's, man, maybe try that don't let one hand know what the other hand's doing kind of thing and see what happens well no that would be that'd be real generosity as opposed to pr generosity that's yeah, tough it is tough it's probably like the with the spirit without the spirit thing that we were talking about at the most fundamental level 
Yeah, again, without true religion in the heart, you can't be generous. You can perform generous looking acts. But generous is not just a mechanic. Generous is a condition of spirit. It's a response to a generousness that was that was pointed to us. Great question. All right, starting next week, we're going to do a Sunday school in the book of Job. And Job's a long book. We're not going to go verse by verse, necessarily even chapter by chapter through Job. We're going to hit some big themes, spend a lot of time in certain texts talking through ideas. This book, which Stephen, I think, got first and recommended to several of us, Trusting God in the Darkness, Chris Ash, a uh, good uh, scholar, theologian, uh, he wrote a big academic commentary on Job, and he preached a sermon series on Job. And this book is the sermon series that is enhanced a little bit by the things he learned writing the commentary and some of the additional uh, information that he gathered and thoughts that he had through that experience. This book is not the Sunday school class. You don't need to read this book to participate in the class, but I will try to tell you every week that if you wanted to read this next section of the book, it would be additive and illuminate some of the things that I had talked about in that week. I would prefer you read it in that direction after I've taught and then read this. That way you're not judging my teaching by the brilliant PhD theologian scholar. But you be you and do what you gotta do uh, and, and I'll be me. But uh, so we have copies of this. If you'd like to get one, you're welcome to. It's also available on Kindle if you go, or iBooks if you go the digital route. But uh, for next week, you will not need to have read anything because again, I want you to read after I read it. But you can grab a book and then next week we'll do an introduction to the book of Job, just talking about some of how it's written, to whom it was written, when do we think it was written, get, getting our mind around the genre and what we're gonna do with that. And then the following week, we'll start digging into the text of Job and working our way through that. Thanks, we're done. <laughs>